0: Hello and welcome to the Ladies' Podcast. Once again, we are joined by Kate Nichols, the CEO of UK Hospitality, and today we are going to chat about some of the key points that came out of the recent Bar and Nightclub Conference and Dust Till Dawn Awards held in partnership with Propel. Clearly, the sector is changing and evolving very rapidly to meet some of the more common issues in the industry. And there are some very strong new players who are doing very well indeed, such as the Inception Group. Many of the speakers were talking about outlet experience, with one operator even playing out Maggie Thatcher's speeches in the toilets. One phrase that resonated was, we are very much a collection rather than a chain. Let's listen to what Charlie Gilkes of Inception told us.
1: Um, Our business is all about experiences. Um, Our mission statement is to entertain people with unique and memorable experiences. So the first uh, venture was Barts. Um, We we did it on a £30,000 budget. Um, we had no money to spend any more than that. Um, it was a site no one wanted, but we had no track records, so we didn't have many options. Um, it was the height of the credit crunch, 50 bars and pubs a week were closing in the UK. So we did something very different, and when you don't have money to spend, you have to use a lot of creativity and imagination. Uh, the next for, uh, for, that we opened was Maggie's. Uh, this is a 1980s nightclub. We only play 1980s music still. Um, it's named after Maggie because Maggie was Prime Minister from 79 to 90. A lot of people were famous in the early uh, 80s or the late 80s, but she was famous for that whole decade. Uh, we play her speeches in the loos. Uh, our loo attendant uh, didn't know who she was uh, when he started. He's now an expert on her foreign policy. Do you think more and more operators will move into this space?
2: I think they probably will. And I think that idea of independence and diversity is a key point that came out of the conference overall. Um, We have had quite a a shock over the last ten years for the late night sector um, and we lost a lot of outlets along the way. However, that sector is now stabilised and it's quite vibrant and what you're seeing from the operators who were speaking at the uh, conference is that there's a a strong appetite for people still wanting to go out late at night but those customers are more discerning and they're looking for an individual experience and I think the late night sector more than any other in hospitality is one where customers do look for that point of differentiation and the uh, operators within the, the space are as you say less of a chain more of a collection of individual outlets even for the largest operators like Deltic and Novus that we heard from at the the conference they are looking to personalize and individualize each of their spaces.
0: Talking of of Novus that you just mentioned um, interesting to hear Toby Smith has has changed from a pure late night operator to more of a daytime business with his uh, tank and paddle and he even having a, a digital only brand do you think this is due to the increasing cost of regulation and legislation as much as way the market is going?
2: I think it's a bit of both, um, and you know, if you, if you listen to some of Toby's comments later on, um, he was basically saying that uh, a late-night business is an incredibly complicated business, it's very complex yes, to run, there's many moving parts, and you've got to spin a lot of plates. And every pound of extra cost that goes on to a late-night business, you need to take an awful lot more over the bar, you, on average 4 to £5, pounds, uh, in order to make a profit. And so that's a warning back to the um, local authorities and national government about the cost of regulation on the late-night sector. Um, We need to have those vibrant late night um, destination outlets. That's important for pulling people through the town centres and high streets in the early evening from that shoulder period from retail and through into the evening. What also I think is is, is telling as a result of that, that there is a change in the market. What we heard at the conference was that late night customers are now not just looking for that late night entertainment, that disco, that nightclub experience, they're also wanting late night food, late night drink and really good quality products and that's what Toby's new business is, is offering in a different form of space. Here's a little of how Toby
0: explained it.
3: So the Novus business effectively had a late night estate that was about 25 sites, 25 sites across the country. If you haven't heard of them, they're things like Tiger Tiger, Forge, Loop, Sway, those sort of things. Now, what's happened since this conference last year um, and is currently in train and happening now is that we've actually sold uh, part of the late night business. So um, we've exited 15 of the late night estate to, uh, to Stonegate. They were, uh, that exchanged in July, and we're just in the process of moving those sites over by way of um, the deep joy of landlord assignments in London. Um, If you've never done that, it's something all of you should experience in life, Um, and if you don't want to do it yourself, get your worst enemy to do it. So it's all great fun. So we're in the process of doing that. What does that mean? That means that the remainder of the late night estate, so that's 10 sites, is currently on the market. So um, we have a stated aim of exiting the late night business, we've done one big chunk of it, and then we've got individual sales and group sales of the remainder. An important fact for those people in the room today is that perhaps the most iconic and famous uh, bar and club, uh, maybe even in Europe, um, is actually on the market as we speak for the first time since it opened. Um, so, Tiger Tiger Hay Markets so are just over the road there, is actually on the market as we speak for the first time in 20 years. Um, so, uh, quite a big, uh, a big opportunity for somebody uh, should they want to take that on um, and has deep pockets. Um, so, um, what does that mean for the business? That then means without our late-night business, and we're in the in the background uh, working away on that, um, that we'll then be focused very much on three key drive brands for um, our, our business going forward. Um, Balls Brothers, I'll come on to that in a minute. Um, Tank and Paddle, which Kate just mentioned, our newest uh, addition to the portfolio. Um, and then Late Night London. Now, Late Night London is our first foray into a business that doesn't have four walls, doesn't have any tables, doesn't have any bartenders, um, and isn't actually bricks and mortar.
0: You mentioned um, the way the market's changing, and uh, we also see that the research shows that uh, 33% of people now prefer the kind of destination you just mentioned rather than the 19% in 2016. Do you think this uh, trend will continue, or do you think the nightclub still has a role, the traditional nightclub still has a role in people's hospitality and portfolio uh, entertainment portfolio Given that we are all drinking less
2: alcohol. Well, I think the nightclub and going out for a for a big night out. Um, the nightclub experience has never been about alcohol, even in the heyday of the super clubs. People didn't really go there to drink. That was that was obviously their USP. You could get a drink late at night and after hours in a nightclub. But um, you know, if you look at the trends, people used to go on average and, and drink two and a half drinks. Um, they're now drinking one point eight. So yes, there's fewer drinks being being drunk. The nightclub experience will always be a younger person's experience Um, and what we're seeing there is is there's still quite a lot of appetite that's holding up well Uh, and from the same set of statistics that were presented at the conference we saw that 53% of people were open to being attracted back to the nightclub um, and seeing how it had changed over, over recent years um, I do think it's interesting that late-night food has taken over and that people are looking at restaurants. It's a, a sign of how innovative restaurants have been, that they are no longer just a sort of one destination point. They are able to keep people throughout the evening. And you can see people like Colombo Group um, who have Blues Kitchen where you can go and have some early-evening food and then it morphs into a late-night entertainment venue. Um, but I do think that that trend will continue towards towards more and more food as you get late-night food markets, street feasts, etc.,
0: you also mentioned that we, uh, we've we lost a few operators and outlets uh, in the last few years. I think the number that was quoted in the comments was 517, mm. which seemed quite a lot. Um, what do you think drove those closures in particular?
2: Well, I think it's a, that's really a closure series that's taken place over probably the course of, of best part of 15 to 20 years. Um, obviously, that was uh, started by... Uh, Changes in licensing legislation, which meant that late-night clubs lost their USP. That was in 2005. Um, And then the the sector has gone through some structural changes as a result of that and was was coming out of the other end uh, when we went into the financial crash um, of 2008-09 and the smoking ban. So we've had a series of perfect storms, one in 2005 when the legislation changed around alcohol licensing, one when we had the financial crash and smoking ban and then more recently where we've had increases that have hit hospitality particularly hard over the last two years. Nightclubs have been uh, not been exempt from that. They've been a bit more insulated than some of the high street operators but they've hit with national living wage, business rates, regulatory changes. Um, but as I say, you know, if we're looking at it, the bulk of those closures were in 2005 to 2015 and we lost half of our nightclubs. The sector since then has stabilised and there's quite an appetite r- over the last year Investors have seen that wet-led, entertainment-led businesses are more robust and resilient going forward.
0: The topic of the high street is obviously one that's very much in the news at the moment. Um, And again, at the conference, it was mentioned that really this is the only industry that's heavily invested in the high street, even though it does sometimes seem to attract some adverse publicity. Um, How can the industry, uh, with your lead particularly, overcome this perception and show the contribution that this sector makes to particularly local economies?
2: Well, I think we've been doing that at a national level. We've just carried out a a really detailed economic analysis which looks at a headline level for UK PLC, what we contribute. Um, And now we're working to um, identify that at a local level, at a town centre, at a local constituency and a local authority level. And we'll be sharing that with all of the local authorities and MPs and we'll also be sharing that with our members so that they themselves can make that case. And one of the strong messages that came out of the conference was... Talk to your local MP and councillors, invite them into your outlet, explain what you do. But we know, on average, those businesses will, will have uh, at least 40 jobs dependent upon them, um, but they'll also have a, a role to play in the wider economy and supporting the wider economy. They contribute vital economic uh, growth and, and GVA uh, it comes at an outlet level, um, and they contribute a lot of taxes. So I think it's about making sure those messages are taken at a national level, at a central local level by UK hospitality, and then owned by the operators and driven forward to explain at every opportunity how important, important they are, particularly in things like business rates, where that is funding vital local services.
0: Many operators um, are very worried about recruitment, with one actually using the word terrified about how few people are applying for positions. Uh, We know that the government are aware of the issue and and that you have all-party support. Have you seen any flickers of progress recently since the launch of the charter?
2: Um, We have. Um, I think there's a recognition now within government uh, that there is an issue to do with labour shortages, not skills shortages. So the the dialogue that we're having has changed and the narrative has changed around it. Um, I think, you know, critically for the late-night sector, which disproportionately employs younger people, so on average about 50% of our workforce across hospitality will be aged under 30. When you get into the late-night sector, it rises to two-thirds of the workforce. So that's quite significant where you're looking at... 18 to 24, 18 to 30 year olds we know that there is a, a demographic demographic deficit that's happened there we've got fewer people being born and we've got 200,000 fewer 18 to 24 year olds due to enter the workforce in 2020 and, and that's not going to improve until 2030 so our message to government is that this is not about skills this is not about our inability to attract workers this is not our, about um, our failure to work proactively with schools colleges young people who are uk born this is simply a lack of bodies and that's where we're not getting much progress at the moment but we are continuing to push away because the government's taken a fundamental wrong turn in looking at low skills and high skills and applying a migration policy that isn't based on economic need
0: andrew from bit one also talked a lot about staff training and he also mentioned retention how about how we keep people in the industry and obviously crucial is attracting younger and creative people and also mentioned that Working in this industry can be very long hours. Here's what he touched on. So we talk
4: within the business. It's one of the things that I learned from the fans of BIT1 about four-wall theory. Fundamentally, we focus about what's going on in our four walls. It's good theory. Um, how do we do that? It's the brand pillars. So we look at great service, great cocktails, and great atmosphere. And in order to deliver great service, it's all about recruiting personality, and then we train skill. We have a fantastic training program for our bartenders. Actually, with the acquisition from Stonegate, our management training program's gonna improve as well. So it's not all bad news for any of you that are concerned about us. We're in a really good place. We have retention plans for our bartenders, and we have development plans for all of them. Bartenders really are part of our USP within Be At One. And as you saw from the video, we celebrate success. We have a fantastic bartender challenge program, and we have a, a, an absolutely awesome staff party. Believe you me, it's good fun. Um, service culture, we don't have 17 steps of service in Be At One. It's all very, very simple. We are a simple business. We work on 560-30. So we want to acknowledge our guests within five seconds. All of our cocktails can be made within 60 seconds. So if you order four drinks, it'll take four minutes, and then change back in 30 seconds. We look at those really important moments of truth for our guests, and we make sure that we deliver on them. It's quite complicated. It takes us longer to train our bartenders because we have so many different drinks on the menu, but our guests genuinely like it, and obviously quality being good as well. So our cocktails are really important. So again, those are the four things that we focus on, high-quality ingredients, innovation, need to be visually appealing and consistent. And the atmosphere. Again, most of you have been to Be At One, so you'll know that we do have great atmosphere in our bars. We train that in. It doesn't happen by chance. We train our managers on how to manage the atmosphere on shift. We let the bartenders be themselves, and we know who our guests are, so we spend a lot of time talking to our guests, and we listen to them, and we act on it. There's a few challenges in there.
0: How do you think we can start overcoming those?
2: Well, I think we need to have uh, an overarching recruitment campaign that goes out and explains to young people the benefits of working in the sector. Um, Yes, there might be long hours or there might be late hours, but also we are a beacon of flexible working. Long hours or later hours in the evening can suit some people, uh, and late hours don't always have to equate to long hours. So, you know, I was talking to somebody who worked at um, Novus who was saying that actually she was ops director and she'd managed to combine having a, a really rewarding career in the late night sector with motherhood precisely because she worked in the evenings and late at night rather than necessarily during the day. Also, I think what we need to do is explain to young people the career opportunities that are open to them and explore how creative it is. So we know that young people are really interested in food, they're really interested in music. It's about explaining the careers that they can have there um, and how that we can help them to be the best they can be and to be creative, how working flexibly for one of our operators could allow them to to combine it with a plural career um, and it's also about making sure that we focus on uh, career progression so you know if you start at a, a nightclub you can start at an 18 year old you can be behind the bar within two years you will if you, if you are hard working and want to have that opportunity you can rise to be an outlet manager so in your early 20s you can be earning a very good salary and running a multi-million pound outlet.
0: Your work with Sarah Clover was uh, was very interesting to listen to, uh, especially regarding policing and closure policy. Um, and it seems that uh, some real benefits have already been enjoyed.
5: Let's listen to what she said. It's not just a question of what the law is. It's a question of what our decision-makers and our regulators believe that it is, which is not necessarily the same thing. Had an officer, a council officer, as it happens, not a police officer, say to me last week, um, that she knew that such-and-such, so-and-so wasn't, in fact, the law, but in her opinion it was the spirit of the law, and um, that is why we had to do it, Um, and I said I was going to spiritually, judicially review her, Um, and that's how that story ends. So policing can be a very difficult job, as we know, and I'm only being slightly tongue-in-cheek here, Uh, it is a difficult job. But for that reason, it can sometimes be quite tempting for the police to take shortcuts and make it a little bit simpler than it would otherwise be. Um, and it is um, these shortcuts that sometimes we have to um, deal with and try and
2: balance out. Could you highlight some of those wins? Yes, well, I think the most significant one um, was making sure that the Home Office, the police, and local authorities understood what the legislation said and changed the guidance around the the weight that was put on police evidence. So back in two thousand and ten, when uh, when the government first came in, they reviewed the Licensing Act and they decided to give a disproportionate weight to police evidence. And they said that the police were best placed to provide expert witness testimony on crime and disorder, which we don't dispute. But they went further than that and said. That that uh, police evidence should be taken as read, should not be challenged. And what we've seen, therefore, is that the police evidence has been accepted without question by local authorities and anything the police have asked for has been granted. Um, and that that's a big win that we've managed to secure, that the government has acknowledged that that's a wrong interpretation of the law and guidance and that will be overturned. The second one that we've um, won recently is that um, police closure powers, uh, again that isn't set out in statutory guidance. It's now set out in statutory guidance and the Home Office has carefully circumscribed the powers that the police have. So again poor briefing, poor training given to police officers gave the impression that the police officers could walk into a premises, find something they disliked and tell somebody that they were going to close them on the spot unless they did what they wanted. And that threat was illegal um, and we've successfully challenged that and it means that uh, operators now should be cautious about being forced to um, do something just because the police come in and say it. So clarifying that the police can't come and close you down is fundamental.
0: Towards the end of the conference we we had a panel discussion and um, a few interesting uh, points came out of that, particularly I think you you highlighted that there was a lack of women both on the panel and actually particularly in the industry, so it's a wider issue women uh, in senior positions, but do you think hospitality is a little behind the curve on this?
2: I think we've got a, long way to, a little way to go. Um, I, I think we, we are seeing significant improvements in this. The number of women in the sector has grown and increased. Uh, what we need to work on is, is making sure that those women... We've, got about, we've probably got a disproportionate number of women at lower levels of management. So if you go to a, an outlet manager or if you go to, to lower management levels in head office, you're probably looking at 60 70% women versus men. It's getting them up to the C-suite level and uh, at industry leadership. That will just take time. Um, and some of the initiatives that the government has put in place are starting to have an effect, as well as some of the changes that the operators are making to to recognise the wider contribution that women make and find a way of, of bringing people up through the marketing and HR route onto the board. Um, and one of the things we did in the same week as the conference was to launch a new women's mentoring scheme for women in hospitality in order to provide those ladders up and to help those senior women who are at a senior level of management already to get up to the next serious levels of senior management and C-suite.
0: All of the uh, speakers on the, on the panel expressed a positive sentiment, were optimistic in mostly about the, the future of the industry. But there was one comment uh, in the conference about how this leaves casual dining, which clearly has had some, some, some problems over the last few years. Where do you think... Casual dining needs to go now if it's going to stay prominent on our high streets.
2: Well, I think people forget that casual dining as a sector is a very u- new, young sector. You know, if you look at pubs and nightclubs, they've been around for for donkey's years. Casual dining, the most mature brands are only about 20 years old. Um, in fact, we've had a casual dining revolution on the high street since 2009, with that explosion of food-led businesses, coffee shops, and chains that have entered the, the market. I think, therefore, you know, you, you're bound to go through some some teething problems. Uh, and what that sector needs to do is to continue to review and refresh its office. For which is what it's doing. I think the sad thing is that uh, the problems that casual dining has gone through are really not self-inflicted. Those are very good operators that, are, that have suffered recently. It's, it's yeah. inflicted and the pain is caused by government legislation and poorly thought through legislation that's been rapidly introduced without consultation. And that's what the government needs to be cautious about when that sector is coming out of recovery and in that survival mode. We don't do something damaging with it when we have it, wrong legislation on tips and trunks, calorie labelling, many labelling calorie caps. We need a, a supportive government for casual dining to continue to come out. And crucially, the reason it needs to come out the other side and survive is that it's vital to the health of our town centres and high streets. If we don't want to have empty shops and empty premises and an underinvested town centre, we need to make sure casual dining can continue to thrive.
0: The, uh, the panel also had quite an interesting conversation about the fact that there's only one outlet in London that has a 24-hour drinks licence. Um, what's holding back London from this being this full 24-hour hospitality economy that so many people at the conference were keen to, to, to achieve?
2: Well, I think London is a collection of villagers, really, um, and uh, therefore a lot of the solutions are delivered at a very local level. Um, and the challenge we've got is that London's a very busy city, it's a very dynamic city, but it's a city where residents live cheek by jowl alongside... Um, entertainment users, hospitality businesses, that's what gives it its vibrancy and dynamism, but it also means that there's an inhibitor in, in the, the opening hours. Um, I think what we need to make sure, I think 24-hour London and 24-hour cities are a misnomer, there's, there's not many people who actually want 24-hour um, but we do need to make sure we've got flexibility and an understanding of of the needs and the spaces of all within the city centres, so I think local authorities need to plan positively for hospitality growth and to make sure that it's it's Uh, the the challenges of living alongside entertainment users are uh, are reflected um, and make sure that they understand the economic importance of those businesses before they just take a very top-down controlling approach to preventing longer hours or more flexible trading.
0: So the hospitality industry's glass is clearly half full, looks like it's getting fuller, as we can hear now from one panel member who was very clear about the future actually recognise it as a good place, so
6: not the enemy, but the yeah. friend, and something that, actually, if you look at the nighttime and the daytime economy, they are linked. And do you know what? If you actually shut all the bars and nightclubs and you run round and some councils and police are like, spike on that dog off Tom and Jerry, barking away at us all until we all sort of stay in and never come out again. Well, then what happens is, of course, you end up with the shops, the nail bars start shutting and the hairdressers start shutting and the clothes start shutting. There's this understanding. I've definitely got this sea change, this feel, this oil tank is turning and there's this, ah, maybe these are all right. Maybe partly because retail is in such disarray because of online and out of town Mm -hmm. and there's only two other answers and that's leisure. And resi, mm. and if we can somehow work out how to live side by side, yes, it's as obvious as zoning, then actually we should be okay. We're getting there, I think. I do definitely feel fairly optimistic about that.
2: I was going to say, so you're a glass half full?
6: Uh, I always am. Yeah. But for th- this time, I've got a reason. Wow.
2: Yeah. And in terms of the, the, the biggest threats, uh, is it still business rates that are the, one of the big threats?
6: It's, it's this pecking away at our margins. That's what it's. 1% here, 1% there every year. Business rates are, you know, for us, half a percent. And uh, uh, national living wage, minimum wage, that's, you know, 1.5%. And duty, if we didn't put our prices up, another half percent. You know, we need to have a good uh, solid, investable top to bottom line KPI PL. And that's It's that nibbling away, and and business rates is just one of them. It's an annoying one, and everyone sort of latches onto it as a big one. But to me, it's a number of them. And, you know, I've seen a
0: margin erosion of around about 3% in three years. But if you had one message for the Chancellor as we approach the budget, what would that be?
2: I think, you know, you're absolutely right. The hospitality industry glass is is half full and could be fuller. You know, we're set fair for growth. Our projected growth is 5.5%. It has been 9%. Um, We're projected to increase our employment, um, but we could do more. We were generating one in six of net new jobs, and we've slipped back on that. So the message for the Chancellor is clear. This is an industry that is a, a goose that continues to lay golden eggs. It's struggled over the last two years as a result of changes that he's introduced or his government has introduced that have wiped the margin of those businesses by about 20 to 30% if you want to make sure that we can continue delivering jobs growth and investment in communities and high streets and town centers up and down the country and providing good quality jobs you need to give us a break and in particular we need to reform business rates and we need a freeze on business rates increases for the next two years
0: brilliant as ever thank you Kate Um, and um, our next podcast will be featuring Blackpool and their vision for the future talking to local businesses MPs and councillors, and that'll be available in early November. Propel is the first to provide the most up to date news with its morning briefings, which has fast become the breakfast must read. To sign up for more information, visit www.propelhospitality.com.